0: Hello, and welcome back to Engaging History. This is episode eight. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of historical events that I will discuss. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. The purpose of my podcast in general are to discuss history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the world around you. But in a way that is understandable and interesting. So you're back. You could not hold off. You could not wait to see if Alexander could somehow pull off a victory when he is outnumbered five to one by the Persians under King Darius of Persia, outnumbered five to one and outflanked by a mile on each side. We also heard in episode seven that he was offered, he, Alexander, was offered by King Darius of Persia. Half of the entire kingdom of Persia, physical land, would now fly under the Greek flag. Half of the treasury would also go his way. He would literally have nothing more to fight for if he could just simply accept the offer that King Darius had given him. Parmenio, Alexander's right-hand man, clearly saw the advantage of that. No downside to being able to go back to their homeland with the size of the Greek empire more than doubled. How much richer they would be. But Alexander, as we heard in Podcast 7, refused it. What's worse in Parmenio's mind is the fact that that exact same offer was now made to any one of Darius's 200 to 250,000 soldiers, whichever one of them showed King Darius the severed head of Alexander, would get that exact same offer. However, that, according to Alexander, would be the key to his success. He went into the tent, he drew up the plans, he then blew out his candle and fell asleep for the night, sleeping well in. "...late into the next morning, coming out of the tent, stretching as though he were on vacation. Parmenio and the men looking at him, waiting for the plans, and he simply were handed those to Parmenio. Parmenio looked at the plans, could not understand it, but at this point also no longer questioned Alexander's ideas. He simply passed the orders all the way down the chain of command." Within a couple of hours, Alexander's forces were now lined up against Darius's forces. Again, Gagamela is a perfectly flat, treeless plain of land. No way that Alexander can use a card, an ace up his sleeve from Mother Nature. They are going to have to fight head-on. And unlike before, at Isis and Granicus, Darius, uh -uh. he's not going to make the call for battle anymore. His troops will age there. They'll retire there. They'll die there before King Darius makes the call for battle. No, 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 no. No more of that. Alexander, you refuse my offer and you want the rest of my kingdom. You're going to have to get through this massive block of humanity that is salivating at the idea of cutting your head off in order to be able to become unbelievably rich instantaneously. So, Alexander's forces marched out to the battlefield. Again, a way that you can kind of visualize this, the larger you draw this, the more obvious the disposition that Alexander is in. Again, on a simple sheet of paper, draw a line five inches long, draw Alexander's line one inch long. That's what he's fighting. Do that, a five foot object with a one foot object opposite it right in the middle. It's pretty darn intimidating. But you see, that would be the key to his failure, and Alexander knew it. Alexander strung out his forces. So if we can keep with that visual of five foot long, a five foot long board or five foot long object, Alexander strung out his forces unbelievably thin to make up about two feet compared to the five feet. That's still a sizable disadvantage to Alexander, is it not? And don't think his men weren't thinking that either. But then what Alexander started to do, and they were supposed to do this ever so slowly, and ever so slowly they executed this plan, is that if you imagine that two-foot-long object, the very ends Both ends of that board or object begin to start bending them out, forming a slight arc, ever so minimally. And then a larger arc, and I mean a sharper arc, and then sharper. And then Alexander forced his soldiers to pivot so that they were at a 45 degree angle opposite Darius's. But remember, this isn't happening fast. It's taking place over several hours, and before you knew it, Alexander began to detect Darius's forces responding to a simple human condition. We are taught, folks, that when we have an enemy opposite us, you're walking out to a car late at night, out to your car late at night, and of course your car is always the last one in the in the, in the parking lot, little to no light is available and somebody is walking opposite you, we are taught to look the enemy square in the eye, to not show fear. That's what Alexander was banking on. And it was happening inch by inch. Over the course of several hours, Darius's forces had unknowingly broken their block formation. The flanks to the far, far right on Darius' side started to move forward and started to spread out to be able to look Alexander's soldiers in the eyes. Darius's forces on the far left also were doing the same thing. You see, the subtlety of that cannot be stressed enough. Remember that when Alexander's forces are doing that, that's their plan. They know how to do it. They know the advantage of that. They're keeping themselves also in their own formation. It's their plan. They're being proactive. They're the offense. Darius was unknowingly becoming the defense. The more Darius' forces spread out, the less their communication lines were intact. The more his forces spread out, the more Darius lost his significant numerical advantage against Alexander. Time marched on hour after hour. Just as the sun began to slowly set, Darius got off of his own horse onto a sizable tree or tree stump to overlook the battlefield and yelled in agony at what he saw his forces were simply beginning to deflate around him as they were surrounding Alexander's forces. Afraid that the condition would continue, Darius panicked and made the cry to engage in battle. And the forces of Darius began to pour in from the center. The two mile-wide flanks on each side never heard the command to engage in battle, so they stayed put. The forces in Darius's center charged right into Alexander's center. And just as that happened, under the command of Alexander, all of his soldiers simply opened up a wide gap in their front line, making it appear as though that they were running from the battlefield. As Darius's forces got more and more overconfident and poured in, and the jaws of death closed in around them. The center of Darius' forces were wiped out almost immediately. Before the flanks could recognize what was going on, fear stricken through their hearts, realizing that their entire block formation has just been destroyed. They attempted, each one of them wanting to get that head of Alexander, started to pour in to Alexander's two flanks as they immediately wheeled about. Now that Darius's centers were all dead, we turned around and made mincemeat out of Darius's remaining forces. At the end of this relatively short battle, Alexander, dependent upon whose numbers you believe, lost no more than a thousand men. King Darius a little bit different. If you believe Darius's own numbers, he lost about 40,000 men. If you believe Alexander's, He lost about 90,000. But whether 40,000 or 90,000, King Darius' army was gone. Darius fled the battlefield. Alexander took off on the back of Bucephalus, racing to try to catch King Darius. It would take several days before he would finally catch up with King Darius, but he found him. He was able to see the royal chariot that King Darius had fled in, pulled over to the side of the road. But as Alexander slowed Bucephalus down, his horse, and approached King Darius's chariot, he realized that there must have been an accident. The horse was still standing in front of the chariot, but the chariot was flipped over on its side. Alexander got off of Bucephalus, looked at King Darius into his chariot, and there was the king. King Darius with his sword perfectly intact on his side and clean. The reason I'm stressing that is that meant that somebody had slit Darius's throat from ear to ear and let him blood out, bleed out. Alexander dropped to his knees in agony. He lifted King Darius, put him on the back of his horse, and slowly, with Bucephalus leading Darius's horse, marched back to the outskirts of Gagamela. Upon arriving there, Parmenio greeted Alexander, asked how once again did he pull off that victory at Gagamela. What did Alexander see that Parmenio and his men, and obviously a quarter of a million men on the other side, missed? And as Alexander said, the moment King Darius made a bet like that to any of his soldiers that severed Alexander's head and brought it back to King Darius, he had immediately turned every soldier of his into their own one-man army. They were out for blood. They were out for themselves. They were no longer fighting as a team because now the soldier to the right and to the left on King Darius's side was looked at as a competitor. That was the key, Alexander said, to being able to wipe out that five-to-one disadvantage. Again, the thinking outside of the box just astounded Parmenio and his men. However, something had to be done now about King Darius. He brought the king's body to the royal courtyard outside of Darius's palace. Alexander was beyond impressed to find King Darius's wife and five beautiful daughters with their bags packed and all of their belongings outside of the courtyard because now the palace belonged to Alexander. Alexander got down on his knees in front of Darius's wife and told told her how sorry he was At Darius's death, how he died this way, Alexander looked at her and said, "I do not know, but two things will happen going forward. Number one, you and your daughters will move back into that palace. That is yours. That was your husband's. That is not under Greek control." Alexander then turned to all of his men. Instead of one Greek soldier, so much as steps a foot on Darius's property, they will be beheaded. Alexander then ordered a royal funeral for King Darius. It has been argued that it was to date is the most expensive funeral for a foreign head of state ever spent and ever invested by any future leader of the world. But Alexander respected Darius. Darius was learning. He learned after each battle and he tried. But Alexander simply outwitted him each time. After the royal funeral was over and life attempted to get back to normal for the Persians, who would now be also flying the Greek flag, do you notice I did not say would take down their flag? They would also fly the Greek flag. The Persian flag was not to be taken down. A key to this we'll discuss later on. Alexander started drawing up plans, but for what now? Parmenio was looking at Alexander and said, where to, essentially, boss? We've done everything your father sought to do, and how many fold beyond that. And Alexander looked at Parmenio and said, come with me. Just as Alexander was getting on the back of Bucephalus, a man about Alexander's age approached him and stuck out his hand and said, good to meet you, sir, and such an honor it is. My name is Bessus. I am Darius' brother. His wife is my sister-in-law. Again, good to meet you. And I am proud to say that I can be your right-hand man now because I have eliminated the enemy. Alexander didn't understand. What do you mean eliminated the enemy? Well, Darius, you found his body. That's why I put it there. I took care of him for you. I slit his throat. Bessus then drew out his sword and showed some of the dried bloodstains still on there. See, I took care of him for you. My loyalty, sir, is to you. Alexander looked and said, I see. Parmenio, immediately upon hearing this, told his men to turn around and book it for a while, because this was not going to be... A pleasant scene. An hour and a half later, the screaming would begin and would go on for several hours as Bessus would fry in the Middle Eastern sun after he had been skinned alive. Bessus was not a hero in Alexander's eyes. He was no more than a two-bit traitor and one to be dealt with. So Alexander... Like his father? Enjoy the fruits of victory? Oh no. You don't solve the Gordian knot, as we discussed in a prior podcast, and simply be happy with the king, of, the king of Persia under your belt now and being able to fly your flag there. Oh no. Alexander headed east again. His reputation preceding him, he would not attempt to be stopped again or his army until the outskirts of the modern-day Pakistan-Indian border. It would be there that Indian tribes would be setting up their defenses in order to try to fight to preserve and save their land. Alexander, having the advantage of high ground, looked down at the Indian forces through the mountains and immediately started to draw up his plans. He retired into his tent for the evening after giving his plans to Parmenio. What Alexander did not notice is that when he gave the plans to Parmenio and turned into his tent, Parmenio dropped the plans on the ground. Alexander got up the next morning. Once again, just as Gagamela got up a little later than you thought a world leader might get up in the morning, got a couple of good stretches, got some breakfast in him. ordered all of his forces to begin to march down into new enemy territory. Alexander was so intoxicated with his victories and his spoils of victory he wasn't watching his men closely. Alexander got on, to the hor- got on the back of his horse, onto Bucephalus, picked up his sword, and yelled, Charge! And immediately attempted to go down the mountainsides. Until after about 30 seconds, he stopped Bucephalus cold. Perfectly still, Bucephalus stood. Alexander only hearing the horse's breathing. He had not turned around yet something was terribly wrong. Alexander then wheeled Bucephalus around as quickly as possible to catch whatever an enemy might be doing behind him. But as he turned around, he was aghast to see all of his infantry soldiers, his foot soldiers, holding their swords and shields, all of his cavalry, but not on the backs of their horses, also only standing next to them. And with that, Collectively, at one time, every soldier dropped their swords and shields. The mighty roar of all of that metal hitting the ground at one time even made Alexander shudder. And Parmenio stepped forward. Sir, we are done. We are done. We have conquered more land than any of your Predecessors, any of our ancestors could ever have dreamed of. We have been gone for, from our homes for eight years. He didn't know it when Parmenio said, and we've traveled for far more than any Greek could have ever traveled in their lifetime. Parmenio had no idea how right he was, because by the time they travel back to modern day Greece, they will have walked or ridden on horseback over 17,000 miles they were done. Upon realizing this, depending upon how you call it defeat, Alexander got off of the horse, stood next to him, and then dropped to his knees and sobbed. Up to this point, ladies and gentlemen, it may seem as though I've had Alexander on a pedestal, and I'm not here to say he doesn't earn his right to be on a pedestal. How high it is, we, we're going to leave that open to subject, you know, up to interpretation. But Alexander, by and large, have done a lot of heroic things at this point, and, and handily so. But Alexander was also human. Alexander, at this point, was also suffering the side effects of excessive drinking. And Alexander's darkest days are now ahead of him, even though he only actually has a couple of more years to live. What does Alexander do now? With an empire that is several times times larger than Greece was when he left home initially, what do you do with the Persian peoples? What do you do with those nations of Israelites in the modern-day Middle East and Egyptians? What do you do collectively with all of these people? Alexander had a plan, and he was going to execute that plan upon arriving back to Macedonia. But his arrival wasn't meant to be. But his plan would not only be put into effect, it is argued That his plan was so successful that it is still being enjoyed into the 21st century. And how do I know? Because I read it? Yes. Because I've seen documentaries on it? Well, yes, that too. But I also know it because I've seen it with my own eyes. I've traveled to these countries that we're going to discuss in the next podcast. I've seen. That actual coin flip into my hand at Athens International Airport, a coin with the bust of Alexander on it. I mean, I'm not taking away anything, folks. 231 years ago on April 30th, 2020, 231 years prior, George Washington was elected our first president or inaugurated as our first president of the United States. And we have a dollar bill that honors that, again, and rightly so. However... Can you imagine a country so proud of one of their founding people that they put the head of that person on their coin some 2,300 years later? And that's into the 21st century. So when Alexander heads east again, he tells his soldiers that not one of these nations of conquered people are ever to be subjugated by the Greeks they are never to be forced into slavery to the Greek people because the Greeks are not better than the Persians or the Egyptians. And likewise, the Egyptians and the Persians aren't any better than the Greeks. That's why he establishes what becomes known as a supra culture, not a super, supra, S-U-P-R-A A supraculture is a combination of different nationalities of peoples, a combination that doesn't show any one nationality on top or at any distinct advantage. That's what Alexander aims to do, and that's what he wanted to do. However, the drinking, the long hours, the many years away from home was also beginning to affect Alexander's mind. Alexander had some stunning, stunning military successes. Not only in the sense that he was able to defeat his enemies when they were outnumbered three to two to one, then three to one, then five to one, but also in preserving the number of lives of his own men. Losing so few lives, a thousand at Gagamella, 7,000 at Isis, And literally only three to four hundred at the Battle of the Granicus. However, by the time Alexander gets back to the center of Persia, he will lose tens of thousands of his own men. Not because of an enemy. Not because of some foreign nation that they had to fight. Alexander's men would die at Alexander's hands. You see, Alexander chose the most logical and methodical paths to get from Persia to modern-day India. He kept his forces near water sources, as well as where food was available. All Alexander had to do was retrace that exact same path to keep his men healthy and hydrated. For reasons we'll never know, Alexander purposely went off of that track, though. He had his soldiers march through arid lands with no food, dry areas with absolutely no water for hundreds of miles around. Alexander's forces were dropping due to starvation, dehydration, and exposure, and Alexander seemed to have zero care for their welfare and their well-being. He would even lose Parmenio along the way. By the time Alexander got into central Persia, He had such a small force left that King Darius probably could have defeated him with his eyes closed. But it's here that we get to the end of Alexander's reign. Because with Alexander now, as king of Persia now, the king of Egypt, the king of the Israelites, and the king of Greece, what more now could he ask for? As he began to contemplate that in 323 B.C., He started to come down with unshakable chills, shivering uncontrollably. By the middle of June, he was becoming incoherent. By early July, Alexander slipped in and out of consciousness. By the middle of July 323 BC, Alexander no longer had a pulse. He was gone. Alexander the Great, as he would become retrospectively known as, We can only surmise the cause of his death either cirrhosis of the liver or syphilis. Yes, he may have been an ardent military man, but that's not to say that he did not have a quick zipper either. So, dying from one of those two again, we'll never know for sure, as the whereabouts of Alexander's remains we still don't know. However, a lot of people don't realize that Alexander, despite his flings with the beautiful woman that he met along the way, did have his eyes set on one woman in particular. Her name was Roxanne, and early in 323 BC, she gave Alexander the good news that they were expecting a baby. It was widely believed that he had a son, but we have no way to confirm that. Because after the death of Alexander, there is nothing in the written record, there is no object found that can be carbon dated to this time that can give us any evidence as to the whereabouts of Alexander's body or the whereabouts of Roxanne and their newly born, again supposedly, son. That would bring us then to the end of Alexander's campaigns. When we get to the next podcast, I wanna return back to this title, The Great. Why would they refer to Alexander as The Great? I'm going to go over a couple of ideas that obviously you might already be laughing to yourself saying, well, isn't it obvious, Chris, why he's called the great? But there's more to it than that. And I want to discuss those. And then I want to take those lessons learned from Alexander and see how it affects a woman who cannot get a job because she's a woman in the 20th century. I want you to see the way his thinking, Alexander's thinking, also was able to get a 17-year-old accepted to a university that, by and large, he shouldn't have been accepted into, because Alexander's thinking would be perhaps his greatest legacy he would leave the world. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com Email me with any questions or comments that you might have. Thanks again, and have a great day.